Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I am your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, LLC. And I am so, so, so very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, those of you been listening for a while know that Somewhere in the Middle is intended to be a safe place where we can learn and grow together. So we discuss a variety of topics ranging from love to politics to money and business and beyond. And that is because the human experience is wide and varied. Now, you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and we've grown onto our own platform, but we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I also want to give a shout out to my guest on the June 15th show, Dr. Kiva Davis. You can connect with Dr. Kiva online. You can find her on Facebook, Instagram, and all the usual locations. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. Dr. Kiva shared tons of valuable information about how we can keep ourselves healthy in our modern stress-filled society. You can get to the replay by visiting Somewhere in the Middle at bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Somewhere in the Middle Radio, and checking out the on-demand shows. You can find our complete show archives, including the June 15, 2018 show, at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Somewhere in the Middle Podcast. I also want to give a shout out to Bruce George of the Genius is Common Movement which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. It is so important that we share this message with the youth. But this message is not just for the youth. We all need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. I am so pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Marcus Tony Campbell. And some of you may have already heard of him, read his work, but for those of you who haven't, I want to share a little bit about him. Marcus Tony Campbell was born and raised, along with his brother, in a single-parent home in Richmond, Virginia. As a young man, he got involved in the street life, 
and in the process was incarcerated. While incarcerated, a friend he knew from the street suggested he try writing since he read so many books. At first he didn't pay attention. It took Marcus getting out and getting back into prison before he gave writing a try. After reading Zane's Sex Chronicles, he thought to himself, he could do that. And thus his first novel, Club Sex, was written. After another setback, he wrote Rich City Thug Life. Marcus does all his own writing, editing, proofreading, typing, and printing, invoking the true meaning of self-publishing. So far, he's gotten Rich City Thug Life into his home library system as ha and has been featured in a magazine and at Author Speaks at his main library. I'd like to welcome Marcus Tony Campbell to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you, Marcus, for coming on the show. All right, so we are here with Marcus Campbell, and I would like to ask you, Marcus Campbell, I have two questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So those questions are, who are you, and how did you become who you are today? Okay. Marcus Campbell is a self-published author from Richmond, Virginia. He's, um, he got his start because a friend gave him a, su a suggestion why he was incarcerated. He's a man of the people, a man for the people, a man from the people. He coaches Little League Baseball, and uh, he helps other people, other authors as well. I got started writing again because my friend, a childhood friend of mine that was reading with me, he told me that I read so much I should start writing. And I told him I couldn't write, and he said, yes, you can write. He said, you probably can write a book as you read. And that started me on my way, although it took me two years to actually sit down and start writing. Hello? Wow. So let me ask you then. So you said a friend of yours while you were incarcerated. And how long ago yeah. was that? That was way back in 2000. Okay. So around 2000, a friend of yours who was incarcerated with you encouraged yeah. you to start writing because you were reading so much. What were you reading? I, well, I, I basically like to read uh, urban street novels, Terry Woods' um, Bloody Rains and Dutch, Vicky Stringer books, Nicky Turner books, Kwame, Shannon Holmes' books. Those were the first people. Of course, I, I originally got started by reading Donald Goins. But I read Donald Goins years and years ago. And I also like to read Western, Western novels. Okay. And so you're reading these novels, and it didn't occur to you to try writing. What was it that Not, your friend said specifically? What did, did he say that he saw something in particular in you? No, nah, you know, um, I used to read every night. And sometimes I would read all day long. And so the guys that was around me, they used to... I guess you call it, pick with me. They'd be like, man, why you keep reading so much? You read too much, man. Put that book down. I used to be like, man, reading is knowledge, and knowledge is power. That's how you, you get to know so much. And you can't learn if you don't read. So then a dude told me, he said, man, I bet you could write a book. I bet you could write a book better than the ones you read. 
And that's when I told him, no, nah, I can't write a book. And he said, man, you can't. And about six months later, somebody else told me the same thing. And it, it was in my mind, but again, I didn't start. It took me two additional years before I finally sat down and took that chance. So you started writing in 2002 is what I'm, based on that timeline. Am I correct? Yeah. And when you sat down to start writing, what happened? Did you, were you able to put words on paper immediately? Well, first of all, were you still incarcerated at the time, or had you gotten out by then? Well, I had got out and got reincarcerated. And once I got reincarcerated, I sit down and um, I was reading Zane's Sex Chronicles. And I said, mm-hmm. man, I can, I can write that, but I can write it for my people in the hood, in my words, where my people in the hood can relate because I don't know no lawyers and doctors or nobody personally. So I wanted the people that I knew that could relate to the same way. So what was the title of your first book? Club Sex, Sensual Erotic Erotic Excitement. Okay. And so obviously the title gives us some idea, but tell us a little about the book. Well, Club Sex is 25 different thug sex and stories. The main character of the book is I, not talking about me. I just wrote it as, as like in a third person, I, I, I. And it's 25 different stories, you know, coming from a thug's point of perspective about sex. Okay. And did you find a good audience for that? Were people enthusiastic about the book? What, how was the reception of the book? Man, the, the, the reception is crazy because I had wild, crazy conversations. And people... I mean, again, by being for the hood, the hood took to it. And then as society caught on to it, they, the conversations get more and more wilder. I have people ask me, say, oh, you supposed to be a sex expert. Oh, you supposed to be an expert doing this. You supposed to... No, I didn't say I was no sex expert. I just wrote a book. I didn't say I was no expert at nothing. So, yeah, the, 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 the hood um, caught on bad, and they love it. Now, you're from Richmond originally? Yeah, Richmond, Virginia. And so are all of your books set mostly in that area, down, or down south in general? Yeah, they are basically coming from Richmond. I, 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 like, I wanted to tell a story about my city like everybody else tells stories about their city. I write for the entertainment, for the entertained people. So. And how do you come up with the ideas for your story? Oh, uh, well, um... For Club Sex, I, I, after I read Zane's novel, I just sit down and um, I thought about different, uh, I thought about different sex scenes and stories I've heard over the years, and I just put them together as into one. As far as rich city thug life, I get ideas just from walking around my neighborhood and riding across the city. You know, by me being incarcerated and being in the streets most of my life, I would never write about my life, but I, I've seen so much and been involved in so much, it's easy to picture certain things happening. And I could just take them, put them on a scratch piece of paper, and formulate them into the stories that I want them to be. So do you work on just one book at a time? Well, yeah, well, I, I try to work on two books at one time, but I go back and forth, and then I just lock on to one book and work on that book until, that one, until I get that one the way that I want it, because I don't want to get nothing crossed up. 
it takes me a little, I'm going to say it takes me about two years to write a book, but that's because I, I think so hard and I, I put it all for a while to go back to it so that I could get it exactly like I want it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you might, you know, write down notes on scrap pieces of paper. How do you then take all of that information and organize it? How do you, what is your writing process? Okay, uh, let's say, um, let's say a thought come in my mind about uh, something could happen. Say, um, let's say a thought come in my mind like I'm walking down the street and somebody run out the, out the bank that they just robbed the bank and they drop some money. So I take that thought and put it down on paper and then I will formulate it. First I would think, what would I do? And then I would think, I don't want to write what I would do. I will write down, what if? What would everybody else do if that was if that would happen to them? So I always want people to be like, man, if that happened to me, what would I have done? What if this happened? So I try to write from a what if perspective as far as the way people will react to everything. So I want to, I want to give you a conversation started when you read my books. Okay. So when you start with the what if, and then do you outline? Do you? I mean, how do you actually put your stories together and get them actually written from that point? Uh, I do a basic outline as far as um, I put my I put the characters down and which character which characters was in what scene. So that would that would help me keep the book going. But once I put my characters down and I know the scene that I want them in, I go ahead and, and put it to paper. Like I might ask you your name, Michelle. I might say, well, Michelle, what's your middle name? And you'll tell me your middle name. I might take your middle name and put it with a name, say, like Nicole. So now I got your middle name to go in Nicole, and I put the get That's my character right there to fit the scene. And I have a vision of what that person would look like, and I just write from there. So maybe you make me a character in one of your books. Oh, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, since since you're writing kind of gritty uh, street novels, do you find that people come up to you and they say, hey, hey, I think I know who this character is or anything like that? Yeah, I get that all the time. I got people trying to tell me that they know certain scenes in my book. Oh, man, I remember when that happened. I said, you can't know when that happened because I made everything up. No, man, it's not. I said, no, that didn't happen. I made it up in my head. Now, if something happened that you know about, I can't help that. But all every thought in my in my books comes straight out of my head because I never want nobody to say, well, I'm talking about this, I'm talking about that person, or I'm talking about when this happened. Everything comes straight out of my head. So when you were writing, I mean, I'm presuming, again, urban books, vary a lot, but the street novels do tend to have a lot of sex in them, a lot of violence. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think that that, how do you think that that serves your community? And I ask this not like in a critical way, I ask the question legitimately, like is there some, what is the value that you see in reflecting these stories? Well. Coming out the hood, you, I mean, you live that life, you see that life every day. And people like to read and watch TV, watch television and movies to things they can relate to. I've never been in the service. I've never been in no branch of the military. I've never been over in no war called seas. So I couldn't write a book about that. I, um, I don't play professional sports, so I couldn't write a book about that. 
I wrote about the life that I know that I know about, and I wrote as far as because I know people like to read these books. One thing about reading urban novels, you never know what's going to happen to the main character. Half the time, you don't even know who the main character is. Sometimes you be trying to figure out if they're going to survive at the end, if they're going to get away, if they're going to change their life over. That's why I love writing about community. And also it's inspiration to kids. Because, like, again, I coach Little League Baseball. So I had my kids come to hear me speak at the main library in our city. Um, they actually got their parents to buy my books and everything. So, and when they saw me, I put posters up around my city. When they saw my posters up, they really went crazy. Coach Tony, you, you wrote a book. You wrote a book. So it's inspirational because they see me every day. So I don't mind writing about my community. I'm not writing, I'm not writing to um, push a message. I'm writing to entertain. When I want to push a message, I write a conscious book, which I'm working on now called Thoughts of a Black Man. Oh, okay. Very cool. So tell us about... Tell us about um, Rich City. So Rich that's your City? second book, right? That's, yeah, that's, Rich that's City Thug Life. Yeah. Okay, tell us about that. Well, Rich City Thug Life is, um, it's not, it don't have no main central characters. The main central character is the city, and it encompasses all four corners of my city, and it gives you an insight into how we live in our city is basically the same thing that you go through in every other city, but it's coming from my city. And it's, um, again, people read and say, well, I can identify with that. I know somebody like that. Somebody in Detroit might can say, man, I remember when that happened to my brother. But at the same time, I remember when it happened to their brother. I don't know your brother. That ha I'm talking about my city. So it's, it's, it's about the city as a whole, not not to highlight one person or make it seem like one person control the city. So do you think there's a difference between southern urban books and northern urban books? I mean, fundamentally, in terms of the culture, the story, is there anything fundamentally different? Not to me. Not to me. I mean, everybody got a different writing style and a different way they want to formulate their style. You consider the way I write. Um, I write in my in each chapter. You might get north side, south side, east and west end. At each side, I tell you what part of the city you own because there's something happening in my city at all times. But I don't think it's no different. I think all hood books are basically formulated the same, but. They got a different story behind. I hear people say, "Man, I don't read urban books because it's the same thing in all of them." No, it's not. Each book you read got a different, a different, uh, goal behind it. It's got a different objective behind it. So it's not the same thing. And I like to read them again because you never know what's going to happen there. Mhm. Mm so, you said that the kids are inspired when they see you on the posters and you're promoting your book. Have any of the kids expressed an interest in writing as a result? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, matter of fact, a friend of mine, his daughter saw it, and she wanted to sit down, and, and she wanted, what, seven years old? She wanted to do a coloring book. She wanted to come with a coloring book, a kid's coloring book and stuff. So a, a couple of kids, they asked me, well, how did you get started in that? Who helped you do it? How you learn how to do uh, write a book? And then I tell them. I mean, I learned on my own, but I was taught in high school. I was taught in school four sentences make a paragraph. So you take it from there. So, I mean, they constantly ask me over and over, all the time. 
That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So when you um, when you do your speaking engagements, how much do you talk about your life? You know, not just the writing, but actually your life and being incarcerated and so forth, and how that how that moved you toward writing. Um, I speak on it. I speak on it in general to inform people what I went through and um the whole process. Um, my life to to understand. Backstory, because again, to know where I'm trying to get to, you got to know where I came from, and I don't mind saying where I came from and what I've been through, because I'm not embarrassed about nothing I did. So therefore, I I, I speak on it so you understand where I came from, what I've been through, and where how I'm trying to change my life over. Just because you've been incarcerated, don't mean that's the end of the world. Everybody that's incarcerated is not the worst of the worst. Sometimes you can get incarcerated and take a class or something in there, learn why you in there, and when you come home, put that to use and be successful with it. So are you finding that you're also serving as an inspiration to people that maybe you were incarcerated with at some point? Yeah, because I got quite a few people that I know that was incarcerated with me that wrote books and want me to help them get their book out, or they got an idea for a book, but... They don't know how to do it, and they keep saying, man, I want to write a book, but I don't know how. Can you work with me? Uh, quite a few people. I've met guys who actually got their books published and been um, incarcerated, and we talk about the different avenues we went through and stuff. I was incarcerated with people that was working on their books while I was working on mine, and we would sit down and compare notes or talk about the different processes we had to do and doing it as a self-publisher and everything. So did you self-publish your first book? I self-published both books. I do oh. all my own. Yeah, I do all my own writing, printing, writing, typing, editing, proofread, and I do my own print. Oh. Okay. The only thing I don't do is buy my book. So tell me about that part of the process, the actually getting it from, you know, out of your computer into a book form. What's, what was that like for you the first time around? Man, it was hectic. It was hectic, hectic, hectic. I think it took me about two months to really finally figure out how to do it. And I was actually I was searching for a publisher, and the publishers here in Richmond kept telling me that they wouldn't, they won't go publish my books because of the language that I use in it. So my kid's mother, she told me, she said, "Well, you're doing everything else, so why don't you just try to do it on your own? Just take your time and sit down there and figure it out." And when I tried to figure it out. I kept getting frustrated. She said, don't let it frustrate you. Just keep going. You did everything else. You're going to get the hang of it. And eventually I got the hang of it. Actually, it was like 530 in the morning when it came to me, when I figured out how to do it. That's beautiful. So it helped for you to have somebody supporting you and saying you can do this, huh? Yeah, it does. It does because sometimes when you get frustrated, you need that extra push behind you to get you where you want to be. Because otherwise, I'd be honest with you, I don't think I would have did it. It would have took me maybe a year to really work on and work on and work on it. Because once I got frustrated, I'd have walked away from it. So, did you were you approaching mainstream publishers, or did you look for urban publishers, or? Well, we didn't know. Um, we didn't have. We don't have urban publishers really in Richmond. I didn't at the time. I didn't know it was a difference in urban publishers and regular publishers. I was thinking that anybody that published books, if you paid them your money, they would put them out there. But oh, okay. I, I found out different in, in searching and going around looking. I found out totally different. 
Well, just so you, you know that I, I am an urban book editor and, and publisher, and what I've found is that it's even hard to hire additional editors sometimes because, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I was based out of Atlanta, so, you know, when you're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, <laughs> folks don't want to do certain things, you know, certain kind of work. You have to respect them for, for having their ethics and, and morals, but it does make it challenging even from uh, that perspective, trying to hire editors. I've had difficulty with that. So did you did you look for folks to help you edit your book or, and, and got frustrated and just said, you know what, screw this, I'm just going to do it myself? Yeah, actually, I didn't look for nobody to help me edit the book. I didn't do that. I, I, I basically was looking for somebody that could print it and put it together for me the way that I, I had typed it up. But after being turned down so many times, one company, I had paid them the money, and they told me they were going to do it, and they called me back and gave me my money back. So after being turned down so many times, I went back and did it myself and, and doing it without realizing exactly, you know, my eyes got tired of keep reading the same thing over and over and over again. So it was a lot, a lot of mistakes in there. But I was catching my mistakes also. And then when I first put it out and people were saying, well, man, you got this mistake in it, you got that mistake in it, I went back and I checked it, and that made me redo it again. And to the point I, I felt that it was in the final stages where it could come out now. Right. Well, and that's a difficult thing, I think, uh, when you're trying to write and edit and do layout and you know what I mean there's so many different stages and you look at your work over and over again and it's easy to miss things that's why you, yeah. you mentioned putting it away for a while that I think yeah. that's a critical step you know to kind of walk away from the project so you can come back with fresh eyes how long yeah. do you typically do that if you put it away for a while how long do you typically do that so that you can come back with fresh eyes to, to examine it again uh, anywhere from three weeks to maybe two months, because I, when I, when I, if I walk away from it for a while, then, I, like you say, you need to be fresh, and I look at it and say, man, I'm not fooling with that today. I know I need to, but I'm not dealing with that right now. I might have to deal with that later. And then when you finally sit down, that's when you catch things that you overlook, and you be like, how am I? Then you get mad at yourself for missing, but you understand that you went back and looked at it. Well, I tell people all the time, it's because the human brain is so brilliant that it actually will fill in the gaps where it thinks it knows the answer. So that's why you miss things, you know, because you almost skip over it because you know what's supposed to be there. Your brain is brilliant. It'll trick you. Um, yeah. So when you, when you finish the editing process, and how many times did you edit? Oh, man. Uh, I don't even know, to be honest with you. Um, oh, oh, maybe 10, 12 times. Because I, when I write, I write in uh, pencil first. Then I go back and go over my work with an ink pen. And then I go and type it. So I still have mistakes when I type it where I have to go back and redo it all over again. So I've said maybe 10, 12 times, maybe more than that. So it sounds like what I'm hearing is that you actually went through at least three rewrites first. Yeah. Where yeah, I got rewrote all the book three times. Yeah, matter of fact, sounds like, yeah. Matter of fact, I know I got four rewrites at my house. I got 
two, I got the original one in pencil. I got the original one that I did in pencil. I went over in ink pen. And then I got the second one that I wrote, in, the third one that I did in just ink pen. And then I got the final draft that I did in ink pen. That's the one that I sent home to my mother. Now, I again, that's another speech I think a lot of authors don't really, I don't know if they, you know, because I work with mostly self-published authors as well, right? So in my experience, a lot of the authors don't really want to take the time to go through the rewrite process, which that's when you actually fine-tune things, right? You fine-tune yeah. themes, you clear out um, any plot line errors, any timeline errors. You may notice that you said something on one page that doesn't correspond two pages over. So is that how you found your rewrite process to work for you? Yeah, because um, one time I, I even had the same paragraph twice, and I had to go back and change. And the only way I, I caught up to it was because, I, again, I had took a break, and I went back, and I was like, wait a minute, man, I just read that. And then I realized I got the same paragraph. So I was like, oh, man, come on, man. You can't be doing that. But it happens to everybody, right? I mean, we're looking at our own words and we're working on something so intensely, you know. Yeah. Um, it's easy to overlook things when you're in the middle of it. And that's why stepping back, I think, makes a huge difference in the quality of the work. Yeah, because your eyes get tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So um, you got through the, the rewrite process, and then you got into editing. How did, how did editing actually differ from rewrite for you? Uh, because in editing, I had to, I don't think it differed. It's just in rewriting, I was sitting down copying everything as I had it. In editing, once I typed it up, I had to go back and read what I typed up and go back and make the changes in the middle. So was that mostly grammar, punctuation, spelling, that kind of thing, or were you still dealing with plot lines and, and timelines and characters? No, uh, the, the, grammar, the grammar and the punctuation, basically because in typing, you know, sometimes when you type, if I type a T, if I type the, T-H-E, it might come up there, H-E. And then you go back and you see, you be like, well, where the T at? Or you might try to spell a word and it's spelling word wrong. So it, it was, it was that, that part did get frustrated. That, that, that part really did because I had to keep going back and changing, the, finding the, the misspelled word, finding the grammar. Then when you, if you use grammar check on spelling, grammar check on the computer, a lot of times the computer correct the words that you don't want correct, especially if you write urban urban tales like I do. I like to write from the perspective of the way we speak here in Richmond. And a lot of times the computer don't print the word, don't don't recognize the word as the way you want it to be said. So you have to catch that and make sure it's Thanks, just buddy. like you want it to say. Right. So um, that's a challenge definitely for urban, but not just any time you have dialect, you know, just – Southern versus up north and all that. I know for me as an editor, um, you know, that's, that's often a challenge, especially because I'm from down south. I'm used to the way people say things down south, but it's even different from, let's say, New Orleans to Atlanta to Richmond. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's true. And I, a lot of times, I I don't know if it's because um, like here in Richmond, you know, I think our most famous author maybe as far as urban tales is Nicky Turner. So, after, to me, the more the more famous your you have in your in whatever career choice you you decide, it makes it kind of easy. And in doing it here in Richmond and trying to get off the ground, that what helped me most is that I know a lot of people here in my city, especially in my in my neighborhood. So once people find out that I had wrote a book and they saw me out here trying to push it, they got on board of it. But it's it's kind of hard when you don't have that name and by not being a big market city known for having superstar writers or anything, it's kind of hard to get going. Well, let's talk about the. That's actually, I want to move in that direction. So you you finished the editing, and then you moved into the publishing realm. So you basically started your own company. That's what a lot of authors don't realize. When you do this, if you do everything yourself, you're starting your own company when you self-publish, right? Yeah. And so yeah. you decide you decide to self-publish. You start a publishing company. What did that take for you to get that off the ground? Uh, basically, you had to find out everything that you that you need for yourself. Like I, I didn't know nothing about um ISBN numbers. I knew about my copyright, but I didn't know anything about ISBN numbers or anything like that. I had to learn that. I, actually, I found out about ISBN numbers once I got incarcerated again. That's when I found. That's when I found out found out about ISBN numbers, but I didn't know nothing about it at first. So I mean, it's a process of learning everything, and you jump into something, you sh you should really know what you what you're jumping into. And I didn't by me not having nobody, and so by me not having nobody to talk to or learn from. Now, when I um, first got home and I started going to the library every day, the people in the library helped me do what I was doing. And they told me they, a lot of things that I was trying to do, I would have to go to the, my librarians and ask them, this, uh, how you do this, how you do that, and they would come over there and show me. So that's, that's what helped me a lot also. Librarians are amazing, right? Right. They are very helpful, very, very helpful in a lot of areas. Um, so you, you went ahead and got published and then you had to market your book. How did that go? That, that, it, it, it didn't go as smoothly as I thought it was at first because by me doing it on my own, I didn't have a, a big push behind me. I thought it was going to be easy when I, when you get out here and tell people, go to book, can you buy my book? No, nah, that wasn't easy because people was turning you down. They was looking at you like you was funny, like you was crazy and everything. So I had to I had to build a brand behind myself. I had to let them see me with the book in my hand. I had to give a couple away for free. I had to, which I still do now from time to time. I might, somebody I know, I might get them a book for free. Just they know I got the book. If they see it, if I give it to them, and they like the book, then they'll tell somebody else about it or somebody else will see it and they'll want to buy the book. So it was uh, it was a whole, whole long process to get it going. But the steam that it pick up, if you keep on going with it, eventually you'll pick up steam and you'll, you'll be able to get it to move in the way you want it to move. 
Well, what about other types of marketing? So it sounds like you were doing a lot of street hustle, going out and just trying to push the book that way. What about other types of things? Uh, did you do live events? Did you do speaking engagements? You know, were you, are you on social media promoting? What, what kinds of things did you implement for the promotion? Mm. Well, I do the social media. I'm on social media every day just about or every other day. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But I had to learn those things on my own because I didn't have nobody to teach me and show me, so that kind of slowed me down. But I, um, once I got the hang of it, although I don't know everything about it now, I'm still learning, it kind of helped me to be able to learn about other things and learn about I didn't know nothing about no book festivals or nothing like that. I just started finding out about them. But in going on social media, I've been to the Atlanta kickback in Atlanta, which I wanted to go in July, but I didn't get my table for this year. Um, I've been to a book festival in um, Longshore, New Jersey. I've been down uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been to Columbia, South Carolina. I've been all over for, for, for um, to different book festivals to, to where you set up your table and, you know, you're a vendor. That's what you are. Right. Um, mm-hmm. To me personally, I use Amazon also, but honestly, Amazon don't pay you no money. All they paying you all is all royalties. They getting more money for the book than you is. And to me, I make you, you do better hand in hand selling and going, putting up your table somewhere and selling your book that way. I would tell people this: if when you first start going to your book festivals, don't expect to walk in there. You gonna think you gonna sell out your whole box of books. Don't think you gonna make a whole lot of money because you're an unknown author. People got to learn to engage you and learn who you are and what they expect from your writing. To, to want to read your book. That's good advice. That is good advice. It's a process, right? It takes time yeah. to build up a following. Yeah. Now, how process. do you keep your followers engaged, you know, in between live events? Uh, well, I'm still working on it. You know, again, I'm on social media and everything. I'm still learning about posting about events and um, all of that because basically I just, once the people send me to fly, I might send that all over my social media, and that'd be it. But um, I constantly go on there. If by me in my neighborhood, and when people where all over my city, when somebody buys the book, I take a picture of them with the book, and I put that on my social media. So I actually have people come up, man. I need my picture taken. I be like, what you talking? About? I need my picture taken with the book, man. Where the book at? I need my book so I can get my picture taken. Go on the fan page. Okay, I got you. I'm, I'm gonna make sure I got you in there. And um. When I did my, I've been speaking at my main library. Um, matter of fact, my home library just asked me the other day to come over there and set up a table in August at an event that they have like we had last year. So I told them I would do that. So I'm constantly pushing in, in as many avenues as I can. On um, 13, I, um, I was on social media. I was on Facebook. And a thing came up about a magazine here in my city, Dime Squad Magazine. When I contacted the lady, she immediately gave me an interview and also wound up getting an editing job with her for a while. That's well, wonderful. internship. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you. So other opportunities can come up just from you, like, keeping your eyes open, your ears open. Yeah. All the time. So are you maintaining a website and a blog? Well, no, not yet. I'm, okay. I'm still learning about that. I'm still learning how to do that. I was trying to get a blog at one time, 
and the site that I went on, it didn't, it wouldn't let me put one up. So I said, I'm still, I'm going to keep learning, keep learning to get it to where, the way I want it to be. But um, I'm supposed to meet with somebody this week that's going to show me how to set it up the way that I want it to go. So I'm hope, hopefully that'll work out to, for the best because I, I, people keep telling me I need to have a blogger because they say I have a lot of good ideas that people need to hear. Well, and it certainly does um, keep people engaged. In between, it gives a place for your um, followers to hang out, and you know, besides Facebook or, or Instagram or whatnot, where they can engage with you a little bit deeper. Oh, okay. You know, at least okay. that's my feeling on the matter. I could be wrong. Every, you know, everybody has their own style, though. A website isn't needed for everything or everybody, but some, some people really find that they like um, having the website where they can post their upcoming events, you know, like you're going to be doing the thing in August, you're going to have different events you're going to, and, you know, get a newsletter, things like that, so that they can get people out there to their events and keep them engaged and so forth. Yeah. I, 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 that's why I want to learn it because I see, I see other people have blogs all the time, and I, I do want to learn how to do that so I can sit down and do it. Because I, I, the book that I told you about, Thoughts of a Black Man, I think I could put some of them on, some of the things I want to put in the book on my blog. Well, and actually I want to ask you about that because I think that's actually perfect material for a blog um, because mm. people are going to want to know what, what kinds of things you're talking about there. So what's the, what is Thoughts of a Black Man going to be about? It's just different thought processes. To me, um when society speak of how black men feel, they don't talk to black men that, that's actually living out here in the hood, in the community, that's out here every day scrambling to survive. They talk to doctors and lawyers to try to figure out the black man thought process. They're not black, I mean, I'm not saying they're not black, let me, let me take that back. But that's not connected to my black people. I want to connect to my black people, let you know some of the conversations we have. We had the same conversations about the president, about the economy, about everything else that, that they want to talk to black men about, but they never talk to us. They'll go to a rapper that's making millions of dollars. How can a rapper that's making millions of dollars tell you how I feel, and I'm standing out here trying to survive going to work nine to five every day? That don't say they, the rappers and the superstars, they meeting celebrities. They dealing with high-class people. We don't deal with high-class people out here. So I want, I want people to know that we talk about the same subjects they talk about. Well, give me a taste of what you might, you know, what kind of thing you might put in the book. Let's say you're talking about the economy. What kinds of conversations would well, people have around the table or on the front porch or whatever? One thing that, that I say is they keep saying they want to get rid of poverty. They can easily get rid of poverty. If they, if they was to, okay, a few years ago they had the stimulus checks come out. I said, instead of having stimulus checks come out, why not every baby that's born legally in the United States, why not put $100 in a trust fund for them, and when they turn 18, they can get their money out off the interest that they draw it off it, and they'll have a starting point. Therefore, nobody has to give anybody anything, and they could, put, they could make it where the parents can't get the money if something happened to the child, no siblings could get the money. If something happened to the child, the money go back to the government. Therefore, every, every child born is born on the same level, whether they're poor or rich. That is a very simple but 
I think it's a really simple but definitely worth considering uh, concept. And didn't some, isn't there some city that's doing something like that, like DC or someplace is doing something like that in terms of creating savings for college or something? I feel like I read that some years ago. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything like that. Not that I can remember. Yeah, I feel like that's something that some one city was experimenting with, with, with a group of kids in elementary school, like putting X number of dollars in the bank for each one of them for college for a college fund, and the money should grow over time. Um, that's, I think that's a wonderful idea. What other kinds of ideas do you think that could maybe come out of ordinary people that might be of use to uh, government? Um, uh, uh, the situation with the schools. It seems like to me all inner-city public schools are hollering. They don't have money for teachers. They don't have money for the bad textbooks. Well, why not each city start an alumni, found, alumni um, fundraiser? Like here in Richmond, we got five high schools here. So if we start an alumni, fun, found, uh, alumni fundraiser, then the, the school that come up, each school never how much money they come up with. The, the school board matches that, that, that amount, and that amount is set to take care of that school. And the school that come up with the most money, then they get an award, maybe a, a big trophy or something, something to shoot for to make everybody involved. Therefore, the people that graduated from the school, the alumni, is giving back to the school, taking care of the school that they come from. So, yeah. Well, I mean, do you think that it's something where the money would increase over time? Yeah, it would increase. You you figure if, okay, um, I graduated from John Marshall High School. So if my school raised, let's say my school raised 15000 if the city of Richmond would match that, that 15000 that we raised, that would give it 30000 to reinvest back into the school. Okay, that's thirty thousand dollars that the city of Richmond didn't have to put up this year. So next year they'll be able to put that another thirty thousand to their school for more improvements, for more textbooks, more technology in the schools. It's simple. It's simple. Um, it's simple mathematics. But it seems like to me the people that's that's in charge don't want to do the things that we need to do for to get the schools for the for to get our schools and our kids in the places that we want them to be. So what kinds of, um, what do you hope to accomplish with thoughts of a, of a black man? I hope, I hope to, um, I want to accomplish, I want to awaken people's eyes. I want, I want people to recognize and, and open their eyes and be able to say, well, maybe this is true. Maybe if we, if we did do this, maybe this will uh, uh, help, like he said. I want to be able to help people, to help people achieve and reach higher goals. People are always saying, well, kids do this. Kids are so bad. The kids in the inner city, they, they do this, they do this. But let me ask you a question. How many inner city, if you go to any neighborhood, any black neighborhood in the inner city, how many movie theaters do you see in the inner city? How many shopping, how many department stores do you see in the inner city? How many uh, uh, skating, skating rinks do you see in the inner city neighborhood? You don't see that. We have to go out to the suburbs just to enjoy ourselves. Why can't we enjoy ourselves here where we grow up at? Give us something to do. Get the kids something to do, and you'll eliminate half of the problems and trouble you're going through. If I could go to a skating rink and skate all day long on a Saturday, 
that's a Saturday where a child won't get in trouble at. If you could start a, a, a skating league at a skating rink, the kids go there all the time. If you put a bowling alley in a black neighborhood, the kids going to go there all the time to bowl. That's another bowling league with a bowling league. Now they got something else to look forward to. They wouldn't have to just go try to play football or basketball. They would have something else that they want to do. So if they're not in the street, what they going to do? They're going to be doing something positive. But we don't have nothing in the inner city neighborhood. We always got to go far out away from us, from the neighborhood. Well, you know, and I think that's interesting that you say that because I remember as a kid, I grew up in New Orleans, and I remember when uh, there was NORD, New Orleans Recreational Department, would have summer camps that were free or very inexpensive. They used to have after-school programs where you would have academic stuff, but you would also be able to do things like maybe when it was warm, still you'd swim or you might have art classes or music, whatever, you know, little activities to keep you busy until 6 or whatever in the evening when your parents came home from, from work. And so I think that there was a tendency in a lot of the cities, of course I'm dating myself because I'm going to be 50 this year, Hello. Uh, Hello. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, when I was a kid, I think there was a lot more of that, you know, where the cities really did have things to keep the kids occupied. But then at some point, it was almost like they just, I don't know, I, I don't know how the funds just dried up. It's, to me, it's more like there had to have been some measure of corruption to, for this to where there's suddenly no money for these things because it just doesn't make sense. That's true. You know? That's that's what I see. I've been where, I've been living in my neighborhood. I'm 44. I'll be 45 in October. I've been living in my neighborhood since I was born. We got a movie theater around here that hasn't been open since I've been living, and I want to know why. And it, it's still sitting there. It's in perfectly fine shape. It's just as good as any movie theater you want to go to out here, but it has never been open. Why haven't y'all opened that movie theater? If y'all had opened that movie theater, we would have had movies to go to right here in our neighborhood. A lot of movies that kids couldn't see, they would have been able to see. Because everybody, parents don't have cars to be able to get out there to the movie theater. So a child that could go to the movies and see the same movies that a child who, who parents got a car is being cheated. But if you put a, put open the movie theater, we could have saw the same movies. I don't understand it, but that's the way they got it. Interesting. Well, no, that's that's a serious problem. I mean, because children yeah. need to be occupied. I mean, yeah. people, people, I don't know where there's this notion that kids are, I was telling somebody earlier today, I talked to a friend of mine, and she said, oh, well, such and such has a child, and, and she's five years old, and, you know, she, you know, so she's worried about child care because she wanted to come do something with us. I said, tell her to bring her, you mm-hmm. know? She's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. she's five and she's rambunctious. I'm like, that's what five-year-olds are. Yeah, people forget. being five. <laughs> people forget. It's like, it's like people get grown and they forget what it's like to be a child. We all was kids at one point in life, so we understand what kids going through. Don't try to look down on kids because they're doing half of the time. The kids doing the same thing we did as kids. So how can you look down on a kid that's doing the same thing? You can teach them to do better if you feel that they're not doing the right thing. But if they just being a child, you can't hold them back from being a child. Ain't no five-year-old just going to sit down all the time and just be quiet everywhere they go. They got a lot of energy. They have to express their energy. Exactly. So why hold them back? 
Well, and, and even that extends to older kids, right? So there's a tendency to want to say, well, these kids today, they're so disrespectful. They don't do this. They don't do that. They're so lazy. And I look at my kids. I have kids. My youngest is going to be 16 soon. My oldest is going to be 26 this year. And I remember mm-hmm. them and their friends, and I look at, you know, how they are, and I'm like, these are good kids. They mm-hmm. work hard at, at things. They are very respectful. And, yeah, they talk the way that kids talk today, just like during the 50s when rock and roll came out and everybody was all up in arms, you know. So they mm-hmm. talk hip-hop language now, <laughs> you yeah. know. They they talk a certain way now. It's not the language of the 70s when I was growing up, the 70s and 80s. It's not the mm-hmm. language of the 50s. It's not the language of the 40s or 30s. So I think sometimes that as we as we get older, we forget that it's not that the kids have changed. It's that the society changes, the language evolves, the mu- music evolves. And I think we get older and we get intimidated. You know, a lot of people get intimidated by that because they don't understand it anymore. I think so, too. I I think so, too, because I said my thing is each generation, each generation, the older generation said, man, these kids are so bad. And then when you look at it, well, these kids doing the same thing that you did. And every generation, even from our grandparents down to our parents, down to us, down to our kids and grandkids, each generation said the same thing. Uh, a gen- my, my grandparents' generation might have complained about the way their kids, their ki- my, my parents' generation, the way that um, the women dress, or the skirts too short, or the, pain, the, the shorts too short, or they need to do this. They don't need to be listening to that kind of music. Then my parents' generation, they complained about us. Pull your pants up. You don't need to be listening to that kind of music. You don't need to be doing this. But won't you listen to music that grandma didn't want you to listen to? So how come you mad at me because I'm listening to music that you don't want me to listen to because you don't agree with it? Not saying my parents per, per se, but that's, that's the way it goes. Each generation looks down on the other generation and says everything they're doing is wrong instead of working with that generation so we all can cohabitate together. Well, and I think it makes a difference, too, because I know that my son in particular, I noticed that he really resents the way that he he feels like his generation is being talked about, you know, and I wonder Mm -hmm. about the impact that talking about them so badly is having on them. You know what I mean? Because he really really seems hurt when he hears, you know, um, some of my relatives, no lie, some of my relatives say things like, oh, they're so this, they're so that, they're so, and I'm like, no, I've been watching these kids. I reared kids, and I know they're friends, and they're not what you're saying. I don't understand what you're talking about. And it, I think it makes them feel bad. And if you're making the kids feel bad, how is that going to show up later is my question. And they're going to show up with anger. They're going to show up with anger, and then they're going to they gonna try to make the kids coming behind them feel bad. But then they're going to be angry at the people who, who, who made them feel bad. They're going to they gonna be angry at them, and they're going to lash out at the, peop- at the older people. Like, like, perfect example, the kids that I coach, me and my kids get along on the field. You know, I talk to them. I might curse here and there, and I'm, I might say anything out there, but they love to play for me because, number one, I'm on the field with them at practice. I'm running around on the field with them just like they running around. I don't just tell them to do something. I show them how to do it. 
I'm not going to tell you, you're supposed to throw a baseball this way, and I see that you're struggling learning how to do it. I'm going to show you how to, I'm going to illustrate. I'm going to give you an example and show you how to throw it. I'm not going to talk down on you because you can't do a certain thing. Everybody has to learn something at some time in their life. Nobody knows it, how to do anything when they're first born. So why should, I, why should I make you feel bad? No, come over here, let me work with you. Y'all do what y'all know how to do. I'm going to take this guy over here with me, and I'm going to work with him one-on-one until I feel like he's ready to come back over there with y'all. That's what we're missing. Nobody wants to take the time to work with kids and really teach the kids without getting frustrated. Or To me, it seems like now more people who are dealing with kids and trying to teach them to do some form is in it for the money rather so than be out there for the kids. When I go down there to coach, I'm, my kid's grown. My kid's 19 and 17. They don't play baseball no more. So mm-hmm. I'm down there with kids who are not my kids, but I'm out there every day working with them, having fun with them. I love to coach baseball, and it's my dream to see kids from the inner city make it to the major league. So I get them as much information as I can. And when I see a kid that got the chance, I tell them, man, you need to get better coaching. I didn't coach you as, much, as far as I can go. I'm giving you everything I know, but you need to go somewhere else to get better coaching. And I try to point them in a direction where I think they can go for better coaching. That's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Well, I'm, we're coming to um, almost an hour, and I want to mm-hmm. be respectful of your time. Um, mm-hmm. What kinds of things do you have going on right now that you would want our listeners to know about? Well, um, again, I will be at my main at my home library at North Avenue Branch Library August 3rd. I am going to the Atlanta kickback in July, but I'm not going to have a vendor's table, but I will have a bag of books down there and some T-shirts and everything. Um, and I'm, I'm still trying to get everything situated to be able to go to more book festivals coming up. But I do have a book trailer that I'm getting ready to put out, so look for that on social media coming up. Um, and a lot of people saying, man, when you go put the book in a movie right now, I'm not, in the pro- in the, I'm not able to do that. But one day I will be able to do that. And I'm publishing a couple of my friends' books that have wrote books that didn't know what to do, so I'm going to publish their books under my publishing label, my publishing company, Marcus Campbell Publishing. Wonderful. So you have a full-scale publishing house now. Well, pretty much so. I'm not, well, I'm not one of them publishing houses where when you sign with them, they are able to pay you. And I tell people, if, if I publish your book, I'm going to walk you through the whole process because I don't want you to be like me. I thought when I wrote my book and got it published, I was going to be able to jump straight in and get paid. It's not like that. It's a lot of work. I'm going to show you how much it costs for your ISBN number, how much it costs for your copyright, how much it costs to do this, how much it costs to do that, so you can see for yourself, so you can understand the process. When I go out to these festivals, I'm going to take your books with me, but I want you to go with me a couple times so you can understand that it's not – just because I went up there with your books to sell don't mean guarantee that you got guaranteed book sale. Just because you got 100 copies of your book and we go to a book fair don't mean you go sell 100 copies of your book. I went all the way to Atlanta, and I didn't sell but four books. I went to New Jersey, I didn't sell but four books. I went to South Carolina, I didn't sell one book. So, but I wasn't mad because I got the network and I got to grow and I got to learn, and that's the process you have to go to go doing it the self-publishing way. Well, in these days, that's the route that you that just about any 
uh, author is taking because even the traditional publishing houses are not spending the money on the marketing like they used to. No, they not. They not. That's why I, I um I got flyers drop made up. I got posters that I put. Up. I mean, laundromats, beauty salon. Man, can I put my flyers in here? Can I put my posters up in here? They they always yeah man go ahead yeah please. I got business owners that come to me, man. Whatever you need, if you whatever you got, you can have a book signing in my in my restaurant. You can have a book signing in my barbershop. You can put your signs up. You can put. I even got to do that that owner on, um, not a shoe store, but where he reviews. He asked me. He told me. He said, man, I didn't know you was doing that. He said, man, bring your flyers up and bring your posters. Whatever you need to do in my shop, let me know, man. I see what you're doing. I support you all the way. So that's, that's what I'm doing. That's beautiful. Well, and that's what it's about, right? It's about community. It's about supporting each other. Because if everybody supports everybody else, we can all eat, right? Right. Right. That's the problem. People People don't. I had um, a friend of mine from years ago. He, he saw me on Facebook. He called me. He told me he, said, um, he knew somebody that lived out of town. They lived in Tennessee, I think it was. And they was trying to write a book, but they had questions about it. So he asked me, was it okay if they called me? I said, yeah, they could call me. When they called me, me and the person talked, and I gave them as much advice as I could to try to tell them what, they, what, what to expect and everything, especially dealing with publishing houses. So a friend of mine came up. He said, man, you charging her for that own advice? I said, no, I'm not charging her. Why not? You ain't supposed to get advice away free. I said, man, that's our problem now. Everybody's so concerned about money, nobody's willing to help nobody. Why would I charge her for information that I got for free? That don't seem right. I don't want her to go through what I went through. And at the end of the day, when I when I got through talking to her, she went straight on Amazon and ordered my book. And I didn't ask her to. She did that on her own. So if I had charged her for the information, then she wouldn't have bought my book. But not only did she buy my book, she got a couple of her friends to buy my book. So I benefited just as much as she did. That's our problem. Nobody wants to be there to help nobody get advice and with free of charge. Everybody thinks whatever I do, I'm supposed to get paid. No, no, no. No. Friends help friends. If you if you got a piece of knowledge, you're supposed to get that knowledge freely because you, you achieved it freely. So give your knowledge away freely. Teach people. Help people. Encourage people. And you'll see everybody grow together. I don't want to see nobody held back. I don't want to sit on top of the mountain and everybody else down at the bottom in the valley. Why can't we all be on the top of the mountain enjoying ourselves? Well said. Well said. Absolutely beautiful. Wow. I am just so delighted. I am so delighted to have had you on the show. I mean, um, I don't even know what to say. All of that. Where can people connect with you? Give us your uh, social media handles. Let people know where they can find you. Okay, you can find me on Facebook, of course, at Rich City Thug Life or at Club Sex the Book. You can find me on Twitter at Marcus Cam ten fifteen. You can find me at Instagram at Mac Mac Tony or Club Sex the Book, and you can find me on Amazon at tinyearl.com dot com slash Rich City Thug Life. Awesome! Just so you know, I bought both of your books. Okay, thank you. So. The Kindle edition, because I keep, I like having an iPad with me at all times so I can read whenever I want to. Uh, you guys, I encourage you to go out and get the books. Um, Marcus Campbell, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. 
Thank you, Michelle. I enjoyed it. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. And feel free to send over some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Again, I'd like to give a big shout out to Beverly Black, Tribe Family Channel, and all the members of Tribe Family Channel. It is a pleasure and an honor to be associated with her and that great family of programs. Now make sure you guys tune into the show on July 13th when my guest will be retired police officer, whistleblower, and author Norman A. Carter Jr. You can find us here every other Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash somewhere in the middle radio. You can also find us at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash somewhere in the middle podcast. Let's continue the conversation. 